Welcome to the Rethink Energy podcast for the 26th of March with myself, Andrei Svantanar, and my colleagues Simon Thompson, Peter White, and Harry Morgan. This is the geopolitics edition, isn't it? <laughs> because, why do you call, why do you say that? Well, b- because it's all issues that are going on in various parts of the world, and it's kind of sometimes edging on, on, on the, the world of politics as well. So some of them... Some of this discussion could be a bit controversial. Uh, uh, well, I would hope every week it's a bit controversial, okay. Simon. And I hope that most weeks we cover something that's geopolitical. The very first um, discussion, though, is one that started last night when when uh, Andres called me up and said, um, the lead article, should I change all the numbers? <laughs> and I said, no. And he said, well, they're all wrong. Because, you know, you've got solar not going up after a certain number of years. And it's interesting that when we built the uh, look back in anger model, we tried to work out how much electricity everyone was going to have as your first and primary aim and include most of the uses of primary energy, that thing which doesn't exist, which we can go into in a second, uh, as it converts to electricity in some form or another. And um, as we added those, we would get to the size uh, of the 2050 grids. And having done that, it, we got. It turns out that you can do it with varying amounts of um, of solar and renewable energy and wind energy, depending on the capacity factors of future devices and the costs of future devices, and, and whether or not they are still curtailed, or whether their grids get upgraded. So there's a lot of potential various variations you can make. And what, after we built this model, I, I wrote the lead article this week by saying, well, how much solar does that imply? And, and it seemed to imply fairly flat installation of solar going forward for the next eight to 10 years. And Andres was shocked by this, weren't you, Andres? Well, yes, because I think your model looks from 2050 as, as a, 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 how much power we need, how much demand there is uh, and of course, I, I've just been looking at it from the huge manufacturing expansions in the near term. So I've been looking at it from 2020 saying it'll go up by 20 percent every year. And uh, then your perspective is very different. I mean, the part of the article I agree on is that that I was persuaded about is that it will peak in 2030 or 2035. But Yeah, uh, and I, don't, I think you'll stay at that level. Hmm. I, I don't think it tails hmm. off. Um, maybe five years before 2050, but probably not. It probably continues to uh, be stuff. You've got to remember being replaced. You know, this is it starts with a generation model, how much energy is generated. And, of course, if, if you've got inefficient solar panels in there, you'll rip them out and put in more efficient ones. Some of them will be 25 years old and they'll be very inefficient. So we didn't actually build in replacement models into that because we we were just looking at the amount of generation from renewables because so it doesn't really uh, dictate how much um, so how, mu- how many solar panels are sold because something 15 years 20 years old maybe you rip it out and you put in new stuff and so, what, so, what does definitely fall off like you said is the capex because that gets yeah. a lot lower per watt yeah yeah i mean i i think that's and that's the, th- the thing, we're used to industries that change. You know, you start with something simple like a DVD player and and you say, well, they cost £3,000, you know, a DVD player and a recorder. 
and then when they were introduced into the market and then by the time they're down to a hundred hundred pounds hundred dollars they're they're in a hundred million homes and you go oh well that's because the price kept coming down people in energy aren't used to the price of coal or turbines or hydro coming down they're used to it staying the same and going up with the with the price of inflation so they can't think like us which is you know active dynamic markets where prices are falling 30 percent per annum like, like they did in tv screens like they did in broadband lines like they did in phone costs and, and building phone networks all of those things are used to a 25 35 percent uh, reduction in price per annum uh, and of course that's what renewables give you so they can't think about renewables sanely and the conclusions from that article i'm just I'm, the um um will run counterintuitive to many people in the energy industry would Harry, it not be defending oh, the idea of um, of there being primary energy? Because you're an engineer. Yeah, I mean, it's, it's something that we've debated quite a few times, really. Primary, I mean, no, but primary, I wanted to have that debate again now because yeah, I, I no, want so, to yeah, tell so me, I, I think what's I mean, the primary, primary energy, energy of hydro? I mean, primary energy uh, as a so primary energy, if you're talking about hydrogen as a source, would be the actual energy that's contained by water as it flows from a place to a place, and then the Secondary energy, as you like, or you like, in terms of electricity, would be what's produced in an actual turbine in that system. So I think that's the difficult thing. And is no we, one ever gives you the, the 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 primary energy of hydro. No, because no one also gives you the primary energy of wind. No one's telling you how much energy there is actually in the wind blowing, or how much energy there is in sort of the solar irradiance hitting hitting the earth in a certain place. But I think so. That's the. How about nuclear? How about nuclear? Do they give you the primary energy of nuclear? Yeah, so nuclear is obviously a much um, easier thing to quantify the primary energy of because you can actually quantify the energy being stored um, and actually produced by the sort of radioactive elements. We've been but, doing this for three years now. I've never seen anyone try and quantify the primary energy of nuclear. I understand theoretically you can. Yeah, well, exactly. So I think that's the problem is that we've we've grown very used to basically thinking of primary energy in terms of oil, coal and gas. So, and that's that's, I think, what the... The crux behind the argument. And it inflates their value because they're mostly they, they go through thermal processes. It, it doubles their perceived uh, value. Yeah, it does. And especially it's, when you're looking at how much electricity is produced. You you you, come, you look at what our primary energy consumption is and you see how much coal we've used. Um, and then if you see how much electricity we've generated from coal, its value seems a lot less. So when you actually look at coal under this primary energy situation in terms of power generation, yeah, it does sort of appear more overvalued. And I think people interpret the information that they see that we're more uh, dependent on coal than we potentially are. I think the, the biggest problem with that is gas. I think that's the sort of biggest mentality issue we've got at the moment, especially in the US, is that people look at these gas figures and think, how are we going to get off gas? We're so dependent on gas because we, we need to replace all this primary energy. But and yeah, petroleum it, as well. I mean, so how, what's the efficiency of the internal combustion engine? I mean, it varies. I mean, in cars, it's as low as sort of, um, it can be as low as sort of fifteen percent, whereas in combined cycle gas turbines, it goes up to around sixty. So it's sort of generally in these sort of limits, just due to these sort of carnot cycle efficiencies within the actual turbines. Um, All right. So I've got a question. If you were to to run a turbine on petrol and generate electricity and use that to drive the car, would you end up with less pollution or more? Oh, it's a good question. I mean, it's it's essentially what happens, really. It's, I mean, it's a it's a turbine, so it's it's just a completely different system. But the yeah, it's the same. It's the same um, 
it's the same substance being burned basically so and if it's the same purity you'll probably get the same output i said the actual efficiencies of the of how the systems work in both senses are actually pretty efficient so it's more the the thermodynamic limits of um, the fuel itself I, I think we should always try to avoid using the, the word primary energy the one one thing area where i think it would be useful to improve this model would be to say okay if you know how much primary energy is used across industry and because we've looked in this report at steel at driving cars at fueling cars and at home heat as the big killers but you know making aluminium uh, driving uh, processes that are not electricity driven anything to do with metals and mining all of those uh, give you a kind of total amount of uh, the only way of getting a total for them for a given country is to look at the primary energy and, and then work out how how you could electrify those processes. And that's what we've done in this report, but not to every industrial process because it'd be impossible. And so I think analysts, economists <laughs> use primary energy to work out how much electricity it's going to use. And I think they come up with the wrong number. I think they come up with far too high a number. And I think that's a game. It, it's, it's for the doom mongers to say, you can't possibly put all that energy across a grid. It'd break. And that's that's where a lot of resistance comes from uh, and perspective. But we don't want to spend too much time. We've done, we've done that report. What's the next thing we want to uh, talk about? I mean, you, um, uh, the, the UK, uh, Harry, you wrote up a piece on the UK's North Sea transition. Yeah, it's, it's, they, basically they made a decision this week that's, that's drawn a lot of criticism. To a certain extent, we found ourselves sort of agreeing with the mainstream media for a change, which is... Um, which was pretty unusual in terms of the energy sector, I suppose. Um, essentially, what they've done is they've published um, their proposals for the, a North Sea transition deal. Oh, the, the government, Harry. Yeah, so this UK is the UK government, which is, I mean, it's just wildly disappointing considering we were saying sort of a year ago, sort of almost that the Conservative Party were coming across quite green with all these sort of emissions pledges and stuff. So, it's yeah, it's just really disappointing that through this deal, what they've basically said is there's no definite sort of end or phase out of oil or gas drilling or exploration in the North Sea. I mean, and I mean, they've pledged some emission targets for production, um, but of the sort of 16 billion uh, pounds that they're going to inject into it, most of that's to sort of actually decarbonise the process. So it's like using renewables to power the oil and gas platforms, which it feels a little bit like cutting off your nose to spite your face, really. It's not something that appears that sustainable going forward. And, all the, and there's sort of investments into carbon capture and blue hydrogen in the sense that you can then keep the oil and gas industry alive and protect all these jobs but at the expense of the climate basically and they're proposing that these jobs in oil and gas can sort of continue and um which just feels a bit backwards uh, and i think the fact that we've already got enough oil in reserves that we can sort of tap um whenever we want uh, to last for around 35 years means that there will be this sudden realization probably five years down the line that we actually, yeah, we do need to stop drilling because we're going to have this excess of uh, production. All prices are going to absolutely collapse in the North Sea. So, the, yeah, there will be the sudden cut-off and the sudden um, loss of jobs. I mean, it would almost be like the coal sector was in the uh, 1980s. No, nobody even. So even in the oil companies, they'll be saying, yeah, we're not going to ex explore, continue to explore the North Sea because anything we find, we can't even put on our assets as a, de a decent base because we're being realistic about the oil price but we keep thinking if the government will pay us to to dig to drill for more oil that's different because it's not going to be an asset problem it won't be a spend problem it is lobbying silent lobbying by the oil community to a conservative government that doesn't understand energy 
reaching net zero emissions and sort of falling in line with the Paris Agreement. It's what the UK should be doing. And the, I mean, the UK's pledge alongside this that they were going to stop overseas uh, fossil fuel funding um, just seems completely undermined by what they're doing uh, on their home on their home turf, really. Yeah, just jump across to your EU story. It, it, isn't this exactly the same? The EU is talking about gas being considered a transition fuel and therefore being available for green money. Yeah, I mean, it's the same It's the same sort of incremental improvements. They just won't actually get us to, to change the energy system significantly. Basically, what the EU has said is that for, for gas cogeneration plants, they can be deemed as sustainable investments if they emit 270 grams of CO2 or lower per kilowatt hour. Obviously, there's a few more sort of conditions in there, like they have, the units have to be built with the potential to shift to some sort of clean fuel in the future. But essentially, what this means is that money will continue to go into gas where it can, probably with carbon capture, and we will start to see these stranded assets when these these units essentially see the same sort of fall off as we're expecting for oil and gas in the UK, but across the EU, obviously. And I think we, yeah, we've placed in the past, we've said around sort of 830 billion euros across the EU in terms of losses through to 2050. Um, and I think Carbon Track actually came out with a similar report this week uh, focusing on Italy and their losses from uh, a persistence in natural gas. Yes, it's a gut, another example of not being able to see ch- change, to understand rapid change. You, you've got here, we're burning gas and gas is the basis of blue hydrogen. Eventually there'll be a blue hydrogen industry, it'll be bigger than the green hydrogen industry. We can burn that instead. We can get, with steam reforming, you can definitely isolate the CO2 and you can capture it and you can store it for a price. It's not as difficult as, as taking exhaust gases from a from a chimney stack and trying to um, uh, suck them in. So it, it will be an industry. It is predictable at current rates in current technology if nothing else changes. But we know that it's going to be undermined by a mass shift to green hydrogen and that we don't need to keep the gas industry alive in order to get there. Okay, what's um just just looking at the stories? Might be interesting to compare Indonesia and Vietnam. In in terms of their radiance. No, in terms of in terms of how much solar they've installed and, and how they do it or how Indonesia is not doing it. Indonesia is um yeah we so we covered 2,000 words on Indonesia this week. It does seem to be it's partly a, uh, an inability to see. I mean, solar and wind are almost non-existent. Their renewables comes from things like biomass. They're not really, Indonesia really hasn't got a uh, renewables industry, and yet it's supposed to get um, 23% of its energy from, um, from renewables by 2030, and no one can see how that's going to happen. And the, the fact that it's got 13% uh, from renewables already is is a bit of a uh, misnomer. It, it's not really from uh, traditional wind and solar. It has no nu- nuclear, and it's just coal, 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 and more coal. If we're thinking of replacing it with anything, it's gas. And they they it's because they they export so much coal. You know, you don't have coal mines in Vietnam exporting 75% of their coal to other countries. And that's what you do have in, in Indonesia. Uh, and so the mining community in Indonesia has uh, once employed 1.6 million people, all still employs 1.4 million. And its coal mining is one of the mainstays of its economy. 5% of its GDP comes from selling coal. It's And it's going to go away. It's a real 
problem uh, that they're not tackling inside Indonesia. Um, whereas the government in Vietnam seems willing to tackle, um, well, not, not just the drift to renewables. Obviously, they're also trying to install coal plants. They're trying to install gas plants, but they're not getting them funded. <laughs> so, so you know, typically going to their neighbours in South Korea and Japan, to the big banks, could you fund our plants, please? Yeah, that'll be fine uh, until there's pressure put on those banks to not fund them. And we've, we've covered that all this year. Uh, and so the success of the feed-in tariff in uh, Vietnam is, is too successful, as you wrote in your article uh, this week, uh, yeah. again, Andres. Yeah, I've covered it a fair few times, and I just decided to go over it again to see what's happening. So the first the first time they brought in the feed-in tariff in the second half of 2019, it was at nine cents per kilowatt hour. And that was like, it's a lot more expensive than the existing electricity. It was just way too high. And they cut it the next year, and it was still at uh, like eight cents per kilowatt hour for rooftops. And they ended up, they, they went from zero to a quarter of their capacity being solar in 18 months. And now they have massive curtailments because the feed-in tariff was a bit too high. The, the, the grid utility is going to have to raise electricity prices a little bit, you know, with the curtailment. You've got people out in the countryside building sort of ramshackle structures that they're not really rooftops, but they're just there so they can claim it's a rooftop for the subsidy. So it was a bit... A little bit overdone, I think, and I wonder what. what, what it's brilliant, though. I mean, this yes. is how entrepreneur. This is how entrepreneurs work. Mm. You know, oh look, the government's offered incentive. The, 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 as soon as people see it, they go right, let's build some, and they get on with it, and they and that's how transitions happen. You let everybody join in. And what what sort of policy do you think Indonesia should bring in to build a bunch of solar? Should it be a feed-in tariff? Well, everyone that's um, stumbled, I mean, they're going to look at Vietnam and say, well, we don't want to do that. <laughs> um, I, I think that, that, that the, um, they start by introducing alternative suppliers than a monopoly energy supplier. And you start by creating some competition. You start by letting overseas investment get into the country. You make it easier for overseas investment to invest in energy. Instead of saying we've got to own all the energy, that's more important than anyone actually having any energy. Harry, to, to change the subject, um, Harry, you've put your been putting your lab coat on this week. We're looking at molecular sieves. Yeah, so it was um, it's essentially it was quite a, a rogue little startup. Um, but sort of, well, it's not really a startup. It's a collaboration between Hydro Quebec and. The University of South Wales, interestingly enough, it's not that far from you, Andres. But the um, the it was quite yeah, it was quite nice actually delving into a bit more of the chemistry side of things. It's been a while since I've um, sort of written about anything on that side of things. But it's essentially what the two are trying to develop is a hydrogen storage system, which it claims, which they both claim can cut the cost of hydrogen storage by eighty percent, which is something that is completely revolutionizes some a sort of subsector of of an industry basically what the sort of chemistry side of it is is, is a manganese hydride molecular molecular sieve which in sort of normal ambient conditions can store four times as much hydrogen than sort of pressurized storage tanks so you could either store four times as much hydrogen in an existing sort of sized unit or you could get the same amount of hydrogen in a unit that's four times smaller which obviously can do things like i mean it's a lower tank pressure lower manufacturing costs different in, uh, lower infrastructure requirements 
Uh, if you're casting out the need for liquid, uh, liquidation of hydrogen, that all can contribute to this massive reduction in cost of storage uh, for for hydrogen and therefore sort of the overall cost of hydrogen going to the consumer. Just to sort of give you some sort of numbers on the actual technology, using this sort of cubus binding mechanism, they think that around nearly 200 kilograms of hydrogen can be stored per cubic meter in this system, which is, I mean, considering hydrogen is normally around sort of 80 grams per cubic meter is, is phenomenal, really. It's, normally, it's nearly 3,000 times as much. It's more than liquid hydrogen can be stored at, even at minus, minus 250 degrees C. Um, and yeah, normal high pressure tank can only store hydrogen at 40 kilograms per cubic meter. So this this promise of 200 kilograms is absolutely huge. And yeah, just hopefully they can continue to develop it into actually a commercially viable system.